0: This is the FCB Radio Network, home of the best personalities and where real talk lives. Online at fcbradio.com. FCB. They freed us all from tyranny, risked
1: everything for
0: liberty. And they thought so we would be America.
1: The Continental Army had spent the winter of 1777 into the spring of 1778 at Valley Forge. While they were there, they were working hard training to be a whole different army when they met the British again in the spring. In this episode, we find out if that hard work paid off.
0: My name is Michael Tippenaro. I am the park historian for Mammoth Battlefield State Park, uh, which is one of the uh, state parks that deals primarily with the American Revolution in uh, New Jersey. Um, I, as part of my uh, job here, I do uh, programming, uh, both educational and for the general public. I also am involved with the collections that are here at the park, uh, managing them and displaying them and taking care of them. I develop new uh, information uh, that's presented at the park, new signs, Mm -hmm. displays, exhibits. and among other things, I am in unique in is that I am also trained as an archaeologist, oh, wow. and the, this battlefield is still considered an active archaeological uh, site. I also oversee anything that is found here at the park.
2: Gosh, that's exciting! That's uh, yeah, it's always it's always exciting. Um, I live in near Jamestown, and I know they still have an active dig, and you can. Go watch, watch them dig and find things really every day. They're still finding things. It's incredible. Yep. Yep. So, um, all right, let's kind of set the scene here. What what were the, the circumstances that led, led the two armies to meet at Monmouth? How did that happen?
0: Okay. Well, we'll start with what happened uh, the year before the Battle of Monmouth. Mm-hmm. The Battle of Monmouth um, is actually... In 1777, the British, after a series of battles, ended up capturing uh, the capital of the United States at that time, which was Philadelphia.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And they spent the winter there in Philadelphia. While they were there, that is also the winter that George Washington spent at Valley Forge. Yep. We
2: definitely so, talked
0: about that. <laughs> oh, I expected you would. Yeah. So this is actually the first battle after... That was oh. Red Valley Forge for the Americans. The uh, at, during the seventy-seven, uh, seventy-eight, during that winter, the uh, you know both sides do what they normally did in those time periods for the war uh, of fighting, which was what they really didn't do much fighting in the winter. Mm-hmm. There were some little skirmishing, actually more involved with seeing where each other was and getting supplies. For the army. Um, so, I like to describe war, maybe that's been a way of doing it, I like to describe war in the 18th century as, think of, of America's pastime, baseball. Mm-hmm. The way that they fought back then was, well, they didn't fight in the winter, in the winter they rested up, they healed, they, you know, just... They stay pretty much put for the winter. Mm-hmm. Then along comes the spring, and that's like in baseball, spring training. Yeah. That's yeah. when the armies, after spending all this time to get uh, just in winter quarters, start getting themselves back together. They start drilling and training again. And for the Americans, this is the first real winter they do that. This is when von Stuyden comes. Mm-hmm. So in the spring, he starts to train the American army for the first time as a European army gets trained. Yeah. So, during this training, there, or this early springtime, a lot of things happened. The British um, commander-in-chief at the time was General Howe. He mm-hmm. gets recalled to England, and a new commander is put in place, General Henry Clinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, right after taking over, he uh, Clinton gets orders from England that the French are about to enter the war. We want you to consolidate, which means and get all the troops in one location. So we want you to leave Philadelphia and bring your army to New York okay. City. Okay. Um, Clinton comes up with a plan to do that. There aren't enough ships to transport his troops all by sea. Mm-hmm. Uh. Also, they weren't sure where the, where the French fleet was, so they didn't want to deal with that. So he decides to send some of the heavy equipment, some of the civilians, and some of the wounded to okay. by boat to New York. And he takes the rest of the army and those civilians who are left behind. And his plan is to march across New Jersey, or as they called it back then, the Jerseys, because... In times mm-hmm. past, the Jersey was two colonies. Yes. Yeah. We still yeah. often talk, refer to it as the Jerseys, East and mm-hmm. West Jersey. So Washington, with his network of intelligence and spies, finds out. And so he's watching. And as he realizes that he's going to march across the Jersey, he starts sending... First of all, he contacts the governor of New Jersey, of Livingston, Governor Livingston, and Mm -hmm. asks him to call up the New Jersey militia. So Livingston calls up the militia, and roughly 1,000 New Jersey militia are sent to uh, West Jersey, near near Philadelphia, to prepare for the British. Their job is going to be to watch their movements and to slow them down. Washington, Mm -hmm. at the same time, starts sending troops to work with them, and the first group of soldiers he sends are all New Jersey soldiers. He sends what's known as the New Jersey Brigade, Mm -hmm. under a general by the name of Maxwell, and General Maxwell meets up with the militia. Now, Clinton doesn't tell the army which way he's going, so Washington doesn't know which way he's going either, so as they start to cross from Philadelphia to New Jersey, and start to march across the state, the militia and the troops that Washington sent are following them. And how they're slowing them down is that it's such a big group of soldiers marching across New Jersey and they have lots of equipment with them, they have to stay on main roads. Okay. So the Americans are knocking down bridges, putting things across the road, falling big trees and other debris Mm -hmm. across the road, so it makes it hard for the British to move. And they are sending reports back to Washington. And as they start to move across New Jersey, they figure out which way they're going. And Washington starts the march from Valley Forge as well. Mm -hmm. And there really wasn't a plan where to attack or what to do. Washington actually didn't know what he was going to do with the British Army. He just wanted to make sure that... You know, he knew where they were doing at this point, and he called his general staff together and he asked them, "What should we do?" Some say we. Some of them said they should attack the British. Others said, "Let them walk across the Jersey." Actually, one of the quotes is, "But pave the, the roads in gold and let them go." Wow. So, the just in essence, that really was make sure they walked across to the American Union because they knew the French were coming to help them.
2: Mm-hmm, yeah. so,
0: so Washington still wasn't sure, but he sent more and more troops down to watch the British. And he started his route across New Jersey as well. Mm-hmm. And he called the staff together again, and still he's getting mixed opinions on what he should do. And he's sort of trying to figure out whether he wants to do an all-out attack, let them march across New Jersey, or just do a little rear-action attack, just, you know, attack the rear of the column, just to say, we can do it.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, as they start marching Mm -hmm. across New Jersey again, he sends more troops. And finally, he makes a decision that we're going to attack the rear guard of the British Army. And show them that they can't just walk across and go where they want. Yeah. So uh, at that, first of all, he offers it to his second in command, uh, uh, Major General Charles Lee, to take command of this army, which was now a couple thousand soldiers plus a thousand militiamen, to attack the British. And Charles Lee didn't want to do that, Mm. but uh, the Marquis Lafayette said he'd lead the attack.
2: Oh, okay.
0: So, so Washington says, okay, you do it. And Lafayette takes some more troops and goes to join the rest of the army and gets uh-huh. there and gets starts to plan and actually tries to attack right away, but doesn't successfully get there uh, in time to attack the rear. So uh, Charles Lee goes to Washington. You know, actually, it's getting like a a big enough group there, maybe I should get the you need one of your senior soldiers to lead this, Lafayette sure. is still young and not, ex- mm-hmm. not that experienced yet. Yeah. So, Washington says, okay, but he doesn't want Lafayette to feel like this is just because we don't trust them. so he sent uh, uh, Charles Lee with about another thousand troops to join uh, with Lafayette to help and says that since he's the senior officer, he will take command, but Lafayette will be in charge of, of mm-hmm. some of the troops as well. So at that point, there are now 5,000 American troops in advance of the main American army that are close to, at this point, we're close to the uh, town where the battle is going to happen.
2: hmm
0: Is in, at that point, the town was known as Mama's Courthouse. Oh. Today we refer to that town as Freehold, okay. which is the uh, capital of Monmouth County. Hmm. Uh, Monmouth County, the seat of Monmouth County, and we, the day before the battle, is told by Washington, "Call your officers together, make a plan, and attack." And so we says, "I don't have a plan.
2: <laughs>
0: My plan is to see what it is when I get there." Charles Lee had been away from the army for a while, wasn't so sure about the troops, and really wasn't a strong supporter for attacking. He wanted to make sure everything was okay. So the day of the battle, which was June 28th, he marches to freehold from English Town, which is uh, maybe about, uh, as the troops marched, probably about four miles, four and a half miles of a march. And he gets to freehold and he starts to try to surround the troops in Freehold, which are about 2,000 British soldiers under uh, General Cornwallis. Okay. And That's certainly as, a name he, we'll
2: be hearing again.
0: <laughs> yes, you're going to be hearing his name. He's a big, famous <laughs> one. There's a lot of famous people involved in this battle. Yeah. Uh, as he starts to prepare to attack, General Clinton turns around with half of the British army, and... Mm-hmm. Comes towards the Americans, so the Americans have to retreat. And as they, and before they retreat, though, is when when Lee was about to attack, he sent the runner to Washington and said, "We found them, and we should take them shortly." Yeah. And so all of a sudden, everything changes. So they're retreating, but it's not just running away, retreating. They are fighting all the way. Back to where we now talk about the battlefield today, which is mm-hmm. about miles from Freehold. Washington starts to come forward with the main army and hears rumors that something's going wrong. And he rides out ahead and he bumps into General Lee and asks what's going on. Lee explains to him, Washington rides in front, takes a look for himself comes back and sees Charles Lee again and says, all right, I'm in command now. Here's what we're going to do. And he comes up with a plan, which is a very simple, but probably one of the best plans he could have had at the time, which Washington asks uh, General Anthony Wayne from Pennsylvania to take some soldiers and set up an ambush. They're going to hide behind an area we call the Point of Wood, And his job was to wait for the British column to walk past and then attack them and run away, join up with Charles Lee. Charles Lee is given about 2,000 soldiers and says, hold this line as long as you can while I set up the rest of the army. Okay. And Lee says, I will do it. And then the, the British Army starts marching through Anthony Wayne does what he's supposed to, and there's some really heavy fighting for a little while, and then his troops join up with Charles Lee. And then they, the ones that are they going back towards Washington, which is a little beyond the point of where Lee is, about a mile behind him, sitting mm-hmm. up on this hill waiting for the British. Oh. And then Charles Lee, with his soldiers, wait for the British to attack. They do their best. They hold them for a while. And then they pull back as well, the British following behind them. And and Lee leads them right into George Washington and the main American army, which is waiting to greet them with ten cannons on the hill. So the British march right into the cannons. They realize they can't do that. They go back to where Charles Lee had set up the defense. They bring up their cannons. Mm -hmm. And we have the largest field artillery battle, which means the cannons that are moving back and forth on the battlefield of the war, right there, where the British pull uh, some cannons, and some uh, special cannon that's known as a howitzer, Mm -hmm. which uh, they shoot, they're firing at the Americans, and the Americans are firing at them, and for the next three and a half hours, there's a cannon duel going on. Wow. During that time, a young officer comes up to George Washington and says to him, Your Excellency, I know of another position. Mm -hmm. And he points to another position across the battlefield. And Washington says, That's a great idea. And tells him to go find General Nathaniel Green, Mm -hmm. who is taking some troops to make sure the British don't come from another side around behind Washington. Yeah. And he says, Bring him over to that hill that you pointed out. And then... General Green gets there, he sets up his four cannons, and now the British have cannons on two sides of them and have to pull back. Wow. And Washington at that point was you know, didn't really you know, he knew the artillery was good, but he Mm -hmm. was trying to prove that what General von Steuben had done training the American soldiers was for a reason.
2: Right with Valley
0: Forge. So there is one group of soldiers that was out in advance of the rest of the British soldiers, and he kept them pinned down while the rest of the British troops are going away with, with one cannon, keeping them pinned in an area of a, an apple orchard. Hmm. And he sends two groups of soldiers under Colonel Silly and Colonel Parker. These are group; these are the special uh, group that America put together after the training, called picked men where hmm. to Valley Forge, each uh, group of soldiers, they pick the best soldiers in their companies and they sent them to form these special units. So Washington okay. takes okay. two of those units, has them while the cannon is keeping the uh, group of British soldiers, which happen to be the Scottish Highlanders, hmm. pinned down in the orchard, gets them off to the side of them and then tells the cannons to stop firing. And as the Highlanders get up, to rejoin the rest of the British soldiers. Out of the woods come Colonel Silly and Colonel Parker with their troops. Wow. And they start to do something that the British weren't used to the Americans doing. They're fighting in a straight line, which is like the the Europeans do, and they're marching Mm -hmm. and firing, one line firing, the next line floating, and they keep coming at the British.
2: Yeah, they know what they're doing now.
0: Right. It's it's the first time the British seen it. It's probably surprised them as much as anything else because the Americans weren't known for attacking. They were known for defending very well. Mm -hmm. And this time they're attacking. And so they start to, the the Highlanders form themselves in their line to defend it themselves. Mm -hmm. They fire back at the Americans. And the Americans keep coming. So I always imagine that the head of the, the Highlanders' Yells at the top of his lungs, the one order that always scared the Americans, mm-hmm. and that's called six bayonets. They oh, bayonets on their weapons. And instead of doing like the Americans normally do, which would be actually turning around and running away,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Colonel Philly yells out, six bayonets and charge! And the Americans oh, attack the, the Highlanders and push them back with the rest of the American troops watching. Wow! and cheering for the first time. They're watching the Americans push the British off the battlefield with big mm-hmm. American But wow. Washington wasn't done yet. He wanted to do one more time. So he sent Anthony Wayne, who had a, a Pennsylvania soldiers and some other soldiers with him as well, some special units together, mm-hmm. and he tells him to attack a different position. And so he goes around and back to the position where Charles Lee had set up his defense and the British had set up their uh, fight as well, and attacks the group of soldiers that are in that area, known as the Grenadiers, which are the best soldiers in the British Army. Mm. And yeah. He, he charged, uh Anthony Wayne charges, and the Grenadiers at first start to fall back, but then they regroup, and they push Anthony Wayne back across the battlefield. Anthony Wayne falls back across that position where Charles Lee had set up mm-hmm. the defense and keeps on falling back to a farmhouse known as the Parsonage Farm. Okay. And as he gets into the farm area, he tells his men to, to set up and prepare for an attack by the British. And the British line back up, ready to attack in their, in their battle lines. But they forgot one little thing. Uh-oh. The four cannons that are up on the hill with General Green could see them. Ah. And they opened fire on them, and the British had to retreat again. And this time, Anthony Wayne got up and told his troops to charge right after them and push them off the battlefield. Mm -hmm. And for the second time in the same battle, the American troops were able to see American soldiers chasing the British off of the battlefield. Yeah. Wow. That was the end of the battle.
2: Wow, that is incredible. So it sounds like... You know, getting to see your army win, obviously, that's a big deal, when you hadn't, especially when you hadn't seen it before. So right. That, we have, is,
0: oh, is sorry. Ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, for a year and a half, the Americans hadn't won many battles. Yeah. And that's that was very important for them. And they don't actually technically win this battle. It's a tie, because both sides get what they want out of the battle. Mm. But it's a big moral victory. because. It, it, gets, it raises the morale of the troops because they can see themselves actually fighting and Washington's able to show Congress and the world that now the Americans have an army that can fight the British and stand their ground against them. And now with the French as their allies, they're ready to take the, the battle to the British.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure that the morale
0: uh, works the other way as well, that
2: the British were awfully surprised to see uh an army that knew what it was doing, fighting back, and it probably
0: probably changed how they felt. Yes, uh, they, and that their job at that point now is now they're trying to get back to New York. So they mm-hmm. they have to, uh, you know, at in the middle of the night, the uh, British march out. You know, they, both sides slept on the battlefield, and the Americans thought they would be able to fight again and have to fight again in the morning, but the British, uh, at early, in the, uh, like around midnight, started marching back to join the rest of the column that was on its way to New York. Oh. So. Um, Interesting. Yes. It, it changes it the didn't way. it's did stick around, people. yeah. <laughs> right. And sometimes people think that's because the British are running away, but they're not. The reason for the whole thing was to keep the Americans pinned down here
2: mm-hmm. long
0: enough for that, that convoy that they're trying to get safely across, which included civilians. It had over 1,500 wagons full of supplies and people's belongings, they were trying to get that safely across New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So by turning the army around and holding the the main army back here, that safely gets to Middletown, New Jersey. And from there, they're going to slowly get themselves uh, set up and defend that position while they prepare to cross from Sandy Hook, New Jersey, to New York City. Mm-hmm. So Gosh. that's that's a whole, a whole big. It's a, it's a you know hard, hard to visualize. It's hard to explain this whole big battle it's in so few words.
2: <laughs> yeah, and you know, and it's funny to think, you know, what what a big turning point it was, considering that it was a tie.
0: Right. Well, and the re- the main ter- reason for this being a turning point, is for the first time. You you see the American soldiers able to fight like the British soldiers Mm -hmm. and have pride in themselves to say, hey, look what we did. Yeah. And it starts to do that. It's it's a big thing for the Americans that way. And it's also big for the the people of the colonies who were starting to wonder, are we doing the right thing fighting the British? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them, this this victory is described by often as the victory at Mamet's. Mm-hmm. is uh, enough to get even the people to start saying, hey, maybe we have a chance.
2: Yeah, gosh. And it's also, it seems like one of those moments where, you know, if things had gone just a little bit differently a couple different times, you know, we might, who knows what kind of world we'd have today. We might be living in a totally different, there might still be a colony, who knows?
0: <laughs> yep, there was, there was a number of times in this battle where one side, may, you know, moved, if they would have moved one way instead of the other, the whole battle mm-hmm. would have been different.
2: Yeah, gosh. Are there any um, you know stories from the battle of you know something that you know, I always think it's interesting to hear about how people in history are really a lot like us. Um, you know, so is there anything you know kind of like a funny anecdote or anything like that that you could share?
0: I, I don't know about a funny anecdote so as much as one of my favorite uh, legends comes out of this battle. Oh, it's I the would legend love to hear of that. Molly yeah. Pitcher. Yes, the legend of Molly Pitcher. Oh. Yeah, this is the this is the battle where Molly Pitcher fought and with the American Army, and it's a case where I like to to explain, especially to students, you know, what a legend is mm-hmm. because it's my description of a legend, which is a little bit different, I think, than most people put it. But I think of a legend as a game of telephone. Oh, I
2: like most,
0: that. Yeah, yeah. Most most children have played telephone. Most adults can remember playing telephone as well. Mm-hmm. It's a case where. Um, you know, the little bit that's the truth is there in that first story, but by the time it gets told over and over and over again, it gets to be like a, a giant whale of a tail.
2: Uh huh.
0: And the case of Molly's yeah. picture, the legend keeps getting bigger every time it gets cold.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the, one of the reasons that it's such, such one of those really big legends to begin with is that it doesn't come out the story until almost 25 years after the war is over oh wow it's you know one of the soldiers that was here a young soldier who fought most of the war and kept a diary a journal Mm. his name was joseph plum martin he published his uh memoirs in essence about 25 years later and that's where stories like this came out and in there he mentioned seeing a woman working on one of the cannons.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the legend, the, the legend, the biggest version of the legend I've ever heard has her single-handedly firing a cannon by herself. Oh goodness! Okay, I love that. And if she can do that, I don't want to meet her in a dark alley.
2: To <laughs>
0: six, it, it takes 16 men to fire that cannon. Yeah. So if she can oh, do God. it by herself, yeah, she's superwoman.
2: She must be, yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. But the truth of the matter is, as the, the majority of the, the, most, the most common version of the legend says, Molly Pitcher was at the Battle of Bombeth and it was 100 degrees that day. Mm-hmm. And it was very humid as well, so it was a very mm-hmm. hot, humid day. And so she was helping to get water for the soldiers.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And when she walked over to the cannon where her husband had been working... She saw him laying on the ground. Oh. She goes over there to see her to see her husband, and she hears this, the uh, officer saying, well, we're going to have to take this cannon out of the battle because we don't have enough men. And she says, yes, you do. I will take my husband's
2: place. Mm. Wow.
0: And she, she steps up to, to fire the cannon. Mm-hmm. And I always describe, you know, there's some famous paintings of, of Molly Pitcher. Yeah. And some of them show her doing, you know, loading the cannon. Some show her with what's known as the ramrod, which is what you push the cannon, the cannonball down and get it ready to fire. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they show her firing the cannon. But my favorite portrait has to be of her standing in this beautiful Victorian dress, uh. which covers everything from her chin to her toes and halfway yep. down her hand. And she's standing there like a Greek goddess holding a ceramic pitcher of water. <laughs> and I just sit there and go, well, let's start with the fact that that dress wasn't designed for almost 100 years. <laughs> right. So I doubt you wore that dress on the battlefield. <laughs> Certainly on wouldn't have been practical, which, even if it <laughs> How are you going to run around to help people on the battlefield? <laughs> but on top of which, did you ever try to run around, even without a battle? just run around getting water with a ceramic pitcher, it's not going to last very long.
2: She certainly isn't, no.
0: She was probably running around carrying a bucket
2: of mm-hmm. water. Yeah.
0: And, you know, but Molly Pitcher sounds a lot better than Molly Bucket. <laughs> so that's why they called her Molly Fair Pitcher. enough. But the water she was getting wasn't really for the soldiers. There's oh. something on the battlefield that needs water even more importantly than the soldier does.
2: Oh, maybe the horses?
0: No. No? Oh, gosh. If the cannon gets too hot, it gets dangerous. It can explode. It cannot work right. There's so many things that can happen. So you have to cool the cannon down every time. So that's what she was going to get the water for. And, of course, some yeah. soldiers got water. She probably sure. picked up a couple of canteens along the way as well and got some water. But the main thing for that water was to keep the cannon yeah.
2: going. Interesting. So,
0: and we, but we know for a fact... That her husband didn't die like the legend says, oh. because after the war they actually have a child. Oh, <laughs> God! You know, they, it didn't happen there. Almost eight years later, they have a child.
2: Oh! Well, wow. The mm-hmm.
0: thing that is, um, we go back to the original little paragraph in the book by Joseph Pum Martin, and mm-hmm. what he says is very different from the legend. He says at the Battle of Monmouth, he walked over. And he saw a woman helping her husband on a cannon.
2: Ah. Uh. <laughs> so, well, that's that, where the
0: legend that, all began. Yeah,
2: that's neat. That's neat. And it's, it's neat that she was able to help, even if it wasn't yeah. the... Uh,
0: right. And I always doing say... doing the work you of know, 16
2: men all by herself. <laughs>
0: right, exactly. But I, as I say, she had a job where, because the description scri- goes on a little further. At one point, she's sh- as far as she could. Mm-hmm. And a cannonball... Bounced between her re- her legs and oh. ripped her petticoat.
2: Goodness. And she that was kept on working. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. yes. wow. I, I always joke about that. I think I was just to make it a little bit more colorful. But mm-hmm. we don't know. Maybe it happened. But if the cannonball went between her legs, it means that she was doing the job, not the ones they often show her on the cannon doing. She mm-hmm. was doing the job, most likely, of what we call the runner, who is the person bringing the ammunition from behind the cannon all the way up to the front of the cannon. Ah. and handing it off, and doing that for three and a half hours in a 100-degree weather. And as we can tell from that story, being shot at the whole time. Wow. And unlike the soldiers there, she's not getting paid to do this. Yeah. She volunteered to help. Wow. So that's one of my favorite stories of this battle. That is pretty
2: cool. Thank you for sharing that. That is really neat. You're very welcome. Uh, Well, thank you for joining us today. This was a great you know, primer on on the battle and, and how important it was to our nation's history. Thank you so much.
0: You're so welcome.
1: Well, there you have it, the Battle of Monmouth. Like we heard in this episode... Military season was kind of like baseball season. They had taken the winter at Valley Forge to rest, the spring was kind of like spring training, and now it was time for the real season. It's pretty crazy to think that this was a pretty important battle that we still remember today as a turning point in the Revolution, even though nobody really won. It was a tie. The difference is our army was trained now. The Americans realized that they could take on the British, and so did the British. It's also where we get that story of Molly Pitcher. We might not be sure exactly what she did, but nearly 250 years later, we still remember her contribution. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Remember, for this one and every other episode, you can visit growingpatriots.com to find videos, coloring pages, links, and other resources that go along with the topic. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Growing Patriots to find out more. See you next time.
2: All from tyranny thing for liberty And they
0: thought so we would be
2: America Land of the free
0: Distributed by FCB Radio Network.